Well, at just over 29,000 feet, Mount Everest is well known as the tallest mountain in the world. And because of its grand scale, climbing Everest has become a symbol of human perseverance and achievement. But its height is not the only thing that makes scaling to its summit so impressive. As a matter of fact, recently I was on a flight and right as the altimeter clicked up to 30,000 feet, I began to contemplate the conditions outside the aircraft at such a height. The thermometer on the screen in front of me was reminding me that the temperature was well below freezing. The air pressure was so low that, as the safety video at the beginning of the flight informed me, the plane had to be artificially pressurized so that we wouldn't have problems breathing. In fact, as the plane shook with some turbulence, I was immediately reminded that at that elevation, specifically in mountainous terrains like the Himalayas, the weather conditions are awful. Winds can approach hurricane levels, and frigid snowstorms and other harsh conditions are the norm. And as if these weather conditions were not enough, the terrain around Everest is constantly shifting. Once reliable stones that hikers could trust now slip and buckle under their feet, and snow and ice threaten those same feet to slip. The path to summoning Everest, and really any mountain at that elevation, is fraught with danger. And in fact, hundreds have died in attempting to make to the summit. The most famous of those who succeeded, however, is probably the one who did it first, a man by the name of Sir Edmund Hillary, an explorer from New Zealand. He was the first to make it to the peak of Everest in the summer of 1953, but Hillary would not likely have been as successful in his journey were it not for the help that he received from a well-known guide, a less well-known guide, rather, a Sherpa by the name of Tenzig Norgay. Sherpas, you may know, are the mountain-dwelling people of the Himalayas, well known for their experience and ability to navigate the dangerous mountainous terrain. They know where feet are prone to slip. They know how to read the weather and where to find safe haven should a squall come up. They know the path to the summit, and they know how to keep you alive on it. As it relates to navigating mountains, you could say that these Sherpas are very wise. And I give you this because in many ways, climbing Mount Everest is very similar, can serve as an analogy for our path in the Christian life. We also are on a great journey, are we not? And while Everest may be filled with dangers that threaten physical death, our spiritual journey is filled with even greater dangers. For failing to make it to the summit spells not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. And so if this is true, if this is the case, we should be asking the question, does Sherpa-like wisdom exist for us in navigating this life? Is there a way for us to find wisdom to make it to the summit of this great spiritual journey we're on? And then if so, I think there are three natural questions that follow from it. What is this wisdom? How do we get it? And then how do we apply it to our lives and then learn from it? Well, the good news for us this morning is that in the book of Proverbs and indeed in the entire counsel of God's Word, there is such wisdom for us and it's held out for us to hold. And the goal of our summer series is to unpack several areas of this wisdom 
from the book of Proverbs that we can apply for power and strength in making it to the summit of our Christian life. But my task this morning is not to plunge straight into the applications. No, my goal this morning is to answer the first two of the questions. What is this wisdom and how do we get it? But defining wisdom, however, as we'll see as we go through the book of Proverbs this summer, is a little bit difficult. Defining wisdom is a little bit defining pure white light. You see, pure white light, though it is colorless, is actually the combination of all the visible light spectrum wavelengths. There's just as much red and purple as there is green and yellow in pure white light. And if any of those colors were missing, the light would no longer be white. In the same way, the book of Proverbs doesn't provide us a direct spelling out definition of what wisdom is. Instead, what we'll see is that wisdom seems to be comprised of multiple wavelengths that each supply an important facet of what it truly is. But it's not that we're without hope. And to help us focus our study, we're going to learn what wisdom is by examining it through the book of Proverbs through three primary lenses. We will first this morning consider the way of wisdom. Then we'll look at the truth of wisdom. Then we'll look at the life of wisdom. And then we'll consider the call of wisdom. So let's begin by looking at the way of wisdom. What do I mean by the way of wisdom? Well, it's helpful to have a little bit of context as we approach this book. Look at the very first verse of the very first chapter of the book of Proverbs if you have your Bible open, which I would invite you to do if you haven't already. It opens up by saying the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. The book is not unclear in who its primary author is. It's Solomon. And you may remember from 1 Kings 3 that shortly after taking the throne after King David, Solomon appealed to God asking for a discerning heart to govern God's people and to distinguish from right from wrong. And God graciously gave Solomon this wisdom and, in fact, made him the wisest man who had ever lived. And so right from the outset, we see that what Solomon is doing in this book is he's trying to communicate that wisdom. And the primary audience is his son. He's penning some of this great wisdom that he's learned, that he's gleaned from the Lord. And he does it in the form of poetry and pithy short sayings that are meant to communicate instruction of truth so that his son can follow the way of this wisdom. And he makes the purpose of his book pretty clear as well in the opening verses. Look at verse 2. It says that he's writing this book such that we, the audience, would know wisdom and instruction. He goes on to say to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. It's fascinating, though, the types of words that Solomon uses to describe this wisdom. He uses terms that imply knowledge is somewhat required. Words like instruction, insight, understanding imply that there's some piece of knowledge that's missing that needs to be communicated. But it's not merely knowledge, for he also uses some ethical terms that imply that wisdom, in fact, has a moral sense to it. He uses words like righteousness, justice, and equity to define its precepts. And if that's not enough to add to our confusion of trying to sort out maybe what Proverbs is, he also implies a future focus, 
qualities that involve the future with words like prudence and guidance, highlighting for us that wisdom seems to be aiming in a particular direction. So Solomon here is like our Sherpa friend from the beginning. He's telling his son, and by extension to us, I've traveled the road before. Look, I know what's ahead. I know what it takes to get to the summit. Let me teach you. Let me guide you. Let me instruct you. And by extension, he's beckoning us to come and partake in that wisdom. But we still have the question, what is wisdom? Well, like we saw, it doesn't seem to be merely a set of information that needs to be memorized, nor is it a book of rules of morals that simply ought to be memorized and then tried to be obeyed by our own strength and power. No, in fact, wisdom seems to imply, uh, Solomon seems to apply that wisdom is so much more than that, that wisdom is defined primarily not in these aspects, but it's defined primarily by what it achieves, by what its end is. You see, throughout the book, there's a theme that arises over and over again, and it helps to uh, frame a lot of Solomon's exhortations. Over and over, the reader is confronted with a choice between two ways of living. There's the way of life, and then there's the way of death. The way of life is called the way of wisdom, and it's often contrasted with the way of folly, the way that leads to death. Where do we see this throughout Proverbs? Where it's in many places, but I just want to show you a few. Take a look down at Proverbs 1.15. Here Solomon is exhorting his son to not fall into the traps, the enticements of those who would lead him into sin. And he writes to his son saying, do not walk, do not walk in the way with them. He says, hold back your foot from their paths. He goes on to clarify that the reason that you don't want to follow after these sinners who would entice you away is because their path ultimately leads to destruction, not to life. But we see that there's this path, there's a motion to what wisdom gives. Similarly, in the later half of chapter 1, look at verses 29 through 32, here wisdom is calling out and is declaring the end of those who do not obey her precepts. It says in verse 29 of chapter 1, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. And then that way, it goes on to say in verse 32, is ultimately destruction. That way destroys them. Later on in Proverbs 5, if you want to flip there, Verses 5 through 6, here Solomon is trying to encourage his son to not fall into the temptations of the temptress adulteress. And here he writes to uh, his son describing this temptress, this adulteress, and listen to how he describes her in verse 5 of chapter 5. He says, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life but her ways wander, and she does not know it. But it's not all negative. Exhortation also comes positively from Solomon to his son. He says in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, walk with integrity and guard the paths of justice. Verse 411 says to follow him in the way of wisdom and the paths of righteousness. He's asking his son to follow after him in the way that is right. The words path and way come up over and over again to communicate an important element of wisdom. 
It's not merely one quality, and it's not merely an ability. It seems instead to be an entire pattern of living, an entire way of life. And the defining quality of this pattern of living, this way, is that it leads towards an end that's not destruction, but rather it leads to life. It's very similar to road signs here in the United States. You maybe have seen road signs that are often named after the destination. In downtown Raleigh, my family was there recently. I went to the center where the capital is, and I found that each of the roads leading away from the capital point to a particular destination. Fayetteville Street leads to Fayetteville, right? The other streets lead to their destinations. In the same way, the name plastered on the road sign of the way of wisdom is life. That's where it points. And understanding this idea that wisdom really is an entire way of living is important to us as we walk through the book of Proverbs, even this summer and as you do it in your own study. It's important in at least two ways, likely many more, but at least two ways that I see. Firstly, it's helpful in that it forces us to ask the question, what road are we on? You see, what's plain from the book of Proverbs is that the dichotomy of the way of life and the way of death is clear. Solomon does not leave any room for his son and by extension us when we read this book that there is some middle amoral way. Instead, he makes very plain that at every moment in our lives we're faced with a choice, a choice to pursue life or a choice to pursue death. And he tells us that wisdom exists to guide us in the path that leads to life. And so it's important for us to ask the question as we go through Proverbs, are we heeding this wisdom Are we making the right choice? But secondly, I think this idea that wisdom is a way also helps us in our humility. You see, understanding wisdom as a journey to be trodden, a path to be taken, protects us from the pride and the hubris of thinking that we've arrived. If it were just a list of facts to be memorized, we could go home and memorize it. If it was a list of morals that we could obey by our own strength somehow, we would just put our hand to that task. And we can check the box saying, we're wise. Proverbs does not extend wisdom this way. Instead, it's offered to everybody, no matter your path in the journey. As it says in the opening chapter as well, whether you're simple or you're wise, whether you're ignorant or you already have understanding, there's always room to grow and improve on this journey of wisdom. And so it guards us, therefore, from the pride of thinking We've arrived and drives us to keep desiring the taste of the fruit of wisdom. And so the purpose of wisdom is found in the reality that it's, it's a way, it's a life, it's a pattern of living. And we understand as well that that path leads to a destination, and that destination is true life. And we'll get to the defining of what true life is in a moment. So if wisdom is a way and it's a road, then another important question follows. What is wisdom's foundation? What durable material must this road be paved with in order to withstand the weather of life? What sturdy, lasting substance will uphold under the weight and pressures that would befall would-be travelers? What can we grasp hold of firmly to make it to our destination? This leads us to the next of wisdom's defining characteristics, and it is truth. You see, throughout the book, a critical assertion regarding wisdom, 
that Solomon makes abundantly clear is that wisdom flows from and accords with truth. It flows from and accords from what God has declared to be true about reality. And as a result of that, it's trustworthy for us. This is openly asserted in Proverbs 3, 19 through 20. Hear these words. It says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. This theme is expanded a lot in chapter 8. And if you flip over to chapter 8, you can see this in verses 22 and following. Wisdom, speaking of herself, says that the Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. It says ages ago she was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. Wisdom is trustworthy because it's ancient. It stood the test of time. It was there at the beginning. Verse 27 goes on to make plain that when God established the heavens, wisdom was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, wisdom says, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily God's delight. We know from Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking his powerful word. And here in Proverbs 8, we see that wisdom was integrally involved in that process. Wisdom was there when the heavens were established. Wisdom was there when God ordered all of creation. Wisdom provides the foundation for everything we see and experience. Wisdom is the boundaries. Wisdom is the direction. Wisdom is the measuring rod by which everything is aligned. You compare that to how folly is spoken of in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 9, 13, it says, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive, but she knows nothing. Wisdom's not like that. Wisdom knows because wisdom was there. Wisdom's essentially laying out her credentials for us. If you're asking the question, is this wisdom that Proverbs and in fact all of Scripture commending to us trustworthy and true? She doesn't just say, I'm trustworthy and true. She, she says, I'm trustworthy and true because I am the foundation of everything that is trustworthy and true. And all of Scripture testifies to this reality. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, Psalm 12, 6. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. It doesn't move. It doesn't shake in the heavens, Psalm 119, 89. Or very famously, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, Isaiah 48. Proverbs 2, 6 6 through 10 makes this plain as well. It says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who would walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Don't you see that wisdom is true and it's trustworthy and it's stable because it flows from the very mouth of God himself. And righteousness, in its essence, 
a theme that's closely associated with wisdom, is basically asking the question, does this idea, does this concept, does this way of living align with what God has declared to be true, what God has designed everything to be? So, wisdom involves taking God's holy standard and measuring everything against it. And Proverbs calls all those who don't do this wicked, and it calls their paths crooked. So, by way of just application, even right here, this theme of understanding what the truth of wisdom is can be incredibly encouraging to us, specifically as the world is throwing at us in an onslaught questions that seek to undermine the very bedrock of our faith, understanding that wisdom and truth flowing from the mouth of God is truly what defines reality gives us not only a sense of confidence, but a sense of peace. The world and its relativism is constantly trying to tell us that gender, marriage, and even God's own role in creation are not what we thought they were. It's attacking from every side and not just attacking the truth of it, but it's also making a concerted effort to convince us that the truth that we find in God's Word is in fact what is foolish and that what the world is offering is what true wisdom is. Brothers and sisters, in doing so, they're fulfilling what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 22, claiming to be wise, they become fools. You see, why the world is concerned with my truth and your truth and his truth and their truth, Proverbs and wisdom speaks to us saying, the only truth that matters is God's truth. And the only righteous way to live is in accordance with his revealed will and standards. And this not only produces confidence, but rest for us, doesn't it? We can rest knowing that the rules of the game are not, in fact, changing, despite what the world may say. And even if human laws and human governments and human wisdom in the halls of academia would speak otherwise, God's wisdom remains, and God's wisdom stands in judgment over them all. So truth, we see from Proverbs, is the foundation of wisdom, gives us stability, certainty, and hope. So we've seen that wisdom is a way, a pattern of living that's taking us to a destination. We've seen also that the foundation of wisdom is trustworthy because it flows from the very truth of God Himself. But what about the life of wisdom? In other words, what is this destination that wisdom is taking us to? Is it worth it? Any good person as they set out on a journey asks the questions if the journey is worth it, do they not? That's how they measure whether or not it's worth the cost, whether it's worth it to try to reach the top of su- uh, the Mount, summit of Mount Everest is intrinsically linked to the value that the climber has on trying to scale its heights. So what is this life of wisdom that's at the end of this destination? In other words, what is wisdom holding forth for us as the good life? Well, I've had the joy of working with internationals from all over the world and from a variety of religious backgrounds and cultural backgrounds. And as I've had the opportunity to discuss spiritual matters with them, their life pursuits and other things, I've had the opportunity to ask them about how they define the good life. What's fascinating is, as they define the good life, I seem to see it revolving around three primary themes. 
Many of them talk about the desire for peace. They talk about the desire for prosperity. And they talk about the desire for protection. Peace, prosperity, and protection. You see, for those who seem to have it all, maybe financially, I've talked to some who confess to me that the heart still feels empty. It feels unstable. Their condition is like the storm-tossed waters of the Sea of Galilee before Jesus commanded the waves and the wind to be still. They're searching for a sense of rest, and yet they haven't been able to find it. Others come from poor backgrounds or perhaps low education backgrounds, and they think that if they get the right education and the right job that will pay the right salary, they'll find fulfillment, that they'll be able to make it. Others have sought refuge from danger, threats of violence and persecution and war, and they're willing to do anything to provide a better life for themselves and for their children. But the question remains in the back of their mind, will they ever truly be safe? Brothers and sisters, I think if we're honest, it's not just my international friends who describe the good life this way. I think this is true of many in the world and maybe even us. And while it's true that our focus on peace and prosperity and protection is often misplaced, I do think that it reflects a deep longing in our hearts, reflecting that we were designed to have a living fulfillment with a person and in a place that seems at this point far off. We long for a better home, do we not? We long for peace, prosperity, and protection that can't be taken away, but that remains forever. And in the midst of that lack of peace, that lack of prosperity, and lack of protection, listen to the good life that Proverbs holds out for us. Proverbs 3, 13 through 18, if you want to read along. It says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Pause right there. Wisdom is valuable because it's able to deliver in a way that worldly wisdom cannot Verse 16, she clarifies even more. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life, and those who lay hold of her, those who hold fast to her, are called blessed. What type of life does wisdom offer to you? What's the end of the road? Wisdom promises the true good life, a life of lasting peace, lasting prosperity, and lasting protection. Do you not want this, brothers and sisters? Do you not want to know the true life that God is handing out to us to take hold of? I know I do. Solomon, and by extension, all of God's Word really, holds out for us that this wisdom exists, that paves a path that's based on truth, and its destination is this true and better life. And this is helpful to us as we go through the book of Proverbs this summer, because it shows us that the value of obeying wisdom, whether it's being disciplined, instructing our children, 
pursuing purity or being generous with our wealth or whatever other topic Proverbs addresses, that the value of following wisdom is that it leads us on the path to flourishing, both in this life and more importantly, in the life to come. So, the question still remains, how do we get this wisdom? If this wisdom exists, and in fact, as a result of going through these verses, we have a desire, a longing for it, can we get it? How do we obtain it? And this is where we'll see how to get it under the heading of the call of wisdom. You see, throughout the opening chapters and indeed throughout the book, wisdom is portrayed as a person. In fact, she's portrayed often as a woman. My wife was actually asking me as I was preparing to preach, why is wisdom presented as this woman? Well, remember that the audience is Solomon's son. And so a helpful, fitting analogy for a young man who's walking through life is to consider the way of wisdom and the way of death as two competing voices, two women calling out. One wife, uh, sorry, one woman calling him to partake in righteousness and in joy and in true life, and the other lying, deceptively calling him to stumble. Proverbs 1, 20 through 21 makes clear that this wisdom, this personified person, this wisdom is calling out, crying out in the streets. It says wisdom cries aloud in the street, verse 20 of chapter 1. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And this is the content of what she's saying. She says, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Proverbs 8, 1 through 5, it says, On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, wisdom takes her stand beside the gates in the front of town at the entrance of the portals, and she's crying aloud. She's saying, To you, O men, I call, and my call, my cry is to the children of man. She's asking us, she's beckoning us to come. She says, O simple ones, learn prudence. Learn sense. And I believe this calling is not a mistake. I believe this personification is not a mistake because I think it undergirds and supports the reality that there's a spiritual aspect to what the author of Proverbs is commending to us in the way of wisdom. You see, God in His grace is the one who's calling out to sinners who are on their way to destruction. He's crying out in the streets, and He's offering us a way of escape. Do you not see the grace that He's offering to us? Because is it not true that the way is fraught with danger, and in fact, we're all born on the way that leads to destruction? How would we know that there's even another way were it not someone who called out and told us of it? While it is true that the caller in our lives may be a brother, a sister, a friend, maybe a pastor who proclaimed the good news of the gospel, the first call comes from the mouth of God Himself, beckoning sinners to come to partake in true wisdom, to leave the life of death that's leading towards destruction and to instead follow Him on the way that leads to life. So what separates those who heed the call from those who do not? What characteristic? What quality is true of those who listen to the voice? What state of heart is required? Proverbs makes this very plain as well. Proverbs 1.7, we see it in the first chapter. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then phrased again, 
in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear is not an emotion we often think of in the broader culture when it comes to our relationship with God, do we? We often don't associate our relationship with God as one that involves a lot of fear. And yet, Proverbs is telling us, Solomon's telling us, God is telling us that a prerequisite, the gateway through which we must enter wisdom, is this emotion of fear. Why fear? Why is fear the critical trait needed to truly understand and to access wisdom? Well, recently, Andy was leading our staff team through a devotion in the book of Ezekiel focused on the theme of fire. He noticed a curious observation that I had never seen before. He noted that in Ezekiel's vision of heaven, the angels and, in fact, the throne of God himself was filled with fire. The heavenly beings were completely at ease with the fire that surrounded the throne of God. And he led us on the meditation to understand that fire really represents the holiness, the purity, and the complete set-apartness of God. This attribute is the attribute, after all, that is thrice repeated in the book of Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the characteristic that the seraphim, the burning ones, are crying out as a primary characteristic of who God is and what He is. And so we have this vision that in the heavenly realms, fire is just abundant because it represents the purity, the complete holiness of God. And for those who are righteous, they have no fear of the fire. For those who are righteous, they walk through the fire because there is no danger, because the fire is a part of who they are, those who are righteous in heaven. But this presents us with a very significant problem, does it not? The reality of it is, the bad news is that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. There's not a single person in this room who has not transgressed one of God's holy laws. And in fact, the Bible goes on to make clear that the path that we're leading, the path of rebellion and the path of transgression, is a path that leads to eternal condemnation and fire because a day is fixed by God. A day is fixed where judgment will be set forth, and that holy fire will be brought, and the holy fire will consume all who do not have righteousness. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says it this way in verse 29, 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. God's holy fire consumes those who do not have righteousness. And if this is true, brothers and sisters, if it's true that the entire world and in fact every single one of our lives is indeed marching towards a day of judgment where righteousness will be pouring forth from the mouth of God, and the holy fire will go out and will purify everything, it, asks, it begs us to ask the question, are we ready for that day? Are we ready to stand under the fire? How can we be prepared if all of these things about our sinful condition are true? And now it's under this context that we see that fear is actually a gift from God, a holy fear, a holy reverence of who God is, that He is a holy fire, is actually a gift if we understand that we're heading towards a day of judgment and that we need a help outside of ourselves to make us ready for that day.
Fear is the prerequisite for wisdom because fear is the only emotion, only evidence of the heart that truly sees God for who He is and truly understands our position before Him. And fear is what drives us to seek the way of escape, the way of escape. And what is this way of escape? I am glad you asked. Because not only does God set forth a call to come to Him to seek wisdom, He also sets forth the provision of the protection of the fires of hell. Similar to how wisdom calls from outside of ourselves, we needed a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, do we not? And God provided that righteousness through His very own Son, Jesus Christ, who left this holy habitation and entered into our sin-cursed world, identifying with us in our weakness. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and unlike us, He lived a perfect life, having earned a complete and perfect righteousness that would stand the test of God's holy fire on the day of judgment. And then He went to the cross, though, to die in the place of sinners, And there he drank the full measure of God's wrath, this holy fire poured out towards sin. He completely absorbs it, completely drinks the fire of hell's wrath on behalf of all of those who would repent and trust in him for salvation. And then he rose victoriously from the grave, showing that death is in fact defeated. He's able to pave the way to life because he made the way to life. And he promises the extension of that eternal life to all who would come after and follow him. And as if this wasn't enough, the amazing part is that he didn't just forgive us our sins. He didn't just purify us and prepare us for the day of judgment. God through Christ actually does more. He invites us to sit with him and to dine with him and to enjoy a fellowship It doesn't just last for now, but that it lasts forever. In Proverbs 9, we see this very plain where wisdom is not only crying out, but she's setting a table. She's setting a banquet. It's an invitation to come, to rest, to have our fellowship with God restored. It's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we will all enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we come back to our definition of wisdom. How do we define wisdom? Well, there's a reason why wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs. It's because wisdom is not a thing. It's not a list. It's not even a set of morals. Brothers and sisters, the key to understanding wisdom is that wisdom is a person. Colossians 2, 3 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then what did Jesus say in John 14, 6, as he was preparing his disciples? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So what is wisdom's call then? Wisdom's call is the call of Christ himself. Follow me. And the beautiful thing is, in John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says that when that call goes out, 
the call to find true wisdom wrapped up in everything Jesus is, he says, my sheep will hear my voice because he knows them and they will follow him. He gives them eternal life that they will not perish and no one will snatch them. No one will snatch us out of his hand. And so if you're not a believer this morning in this sovereign God, if you're not a believer in Christ who paved the way of escape from eternal punishment, I want to urge you to obey Proverbs 27.12. Proverbs 27.12 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on to suffer for it. Don't go on the way of destruction and endure suffering. The call of wisdom, the call to seek safety while it can still be found is there for you. See the danger by faith that awaits all those who are outside of Christ and run to him, flee to him, repent of your sin and find forgiveness and true wisdom. But then what about all of us who've already heeded the call to follow Christ? Well, the instruction for us, brothers and sisters, is to keep making progress in the journey. I love that our church has adopted the language that Andy adopted years ago, that every Christian is called to two journeys, the infinite journeys of sanctification and gospel advance. How do we make progress in these journeys? What's the key to understanding how progress in these journeys can be made? Well, if we want to know what wisdom is, what the way of progress in these journeys is, we can look to the life, the truth, and the way of Jesus himself. The way of Jesus is the way of purity and holiness. So keep meditating on the holiness of God. Let the holiness of God drive you to a healthy fear that serves as the beginning of wisdom, that empowers you to put aside all sin, that put, uh, encourages you to, to uh, be motivated to put sin to death and to pursue that purity now. The way of Jesus is one of purity, and that is how we are sanctified. And then what about for gospel advance? Well, is evangelism and mission not just fearing God for other people? Is the advance of the gospel not embracing our role as similar to the person of wisdom, where we too go out into the highways and the byways and proclaim that there is a way of escape and that true life and true joy can be found not in the deceitful schemes of the world, but in the eternal riches of our Heavenly Father? The answer is yes. So embrace the call to evangelism and mission by fearing God on behalf of other people. Let your testimony be the beginning of others' wisdom. Also look to the truth of Jesus. Treasure God's Word. Hide it in your hearts. Remember, it's not merely enough to amass knowledge. God wants us to put it into practice, so cling to it, even when the world would threaten it. And then look to the life of Jesus. By this I mean keep your eye fixed on the eternal life that He has bought for us. Remember that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare heaven for us. And so meditate on all that Christ has accomplished for you. And let this drive you to self-sacrificial service to others, where you're willing to give up your own peace, your own prosperity, and your own protection in a temporary way in this world to pave the way for others. And then if you're feeling weak in the journey, maybe you're thinking about all this and wondering, how can I take my next step? Remember, too, that the call of wisdom is a call to enjoy relationship with your Savior. Remember the presence of Jesus in your life. You may feel like right now you're enduring a trial the size of Mount Everest. You may be beset with a sin you feel like you can't just shake. 
Remember that we have a loving, righteous high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness and stands ready to help us on the way. And when this time comes for us to pass from this life to the next, when we finally have reached that summit, know and meditate on the reality that the journey is actually far from being over. For what awaits us on the other side is actually a way, a truth, and a life that is purposed to be enjoyed forever and ever in eternity with our Savior. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank You so much for the call that wisdom gives to us to flee to Christ. Lord, we know that Proverbs is a very practical book. It's filled with wise sayings, and there's lots of value to understanding it. Help us, Lord, as we endeavor this summer to understand the book of Proverbs and to apply it to our lives in a way that points us to true wisdom, a way that points us to Christ. Help us, Lord, to be filled with a holy fear that's based on the reality of your holiness. May that drive us, Father, to be pure and holy, for our Father is holy. And may that drive us as well to commend the way of wisdom to others who do not yet know it, that they too would join in and enjoy the banquet of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.